been with you the last two weeks while Toby's undergoing quarantine, and we had hoped that would be a two-week quarantine, but uh, this week he still had a few repercussions from COVID, feeling much better, but uh, thought maybe he should not return today, so asked if I would do that, and I'm happy to try one more time to fill the pulpit. Uh, problem was what to preach. When you find out in the middle of the week you got to preach, you're not, you hadn't been thinking about it for a while. Uh, luckily, the day that I found out I had to preach, the Christian Chronicle came in the mail. And I sat down to read the Chronicle, which is, uh, for those of you that don't know, the international newspaper for the Churches of Christ. And I was whipping through it and got to the page where they published some letters from readers about last month's issue. And the heading of that reader section said, Stories on U.S. Politics Draw Criticism and Praise. So I read through the letters. There were seven letters, and it was amazing. Uh, One guy said, I was disappointed. Uh, That was intentionally deceptive. Another one said, I'm glad to finally hear a voice of reason. Another one said, I was embarrassed by your coverage. I was ashamed. You should get a job in fake news instead of calling yourself a religious editor. Another one said, you're right. It's about that cult that believes that Trump is telling the truth when he's the biggest liar ever. Now, those were the letters. So my first response was, i got to find last month's issue. You know, i got to see what this is about. And luckily I had it still around. And the front page article is, Flag, Faith, and Fury, subheaded Christian Nationalism on Display in the U.S. Capitol Riot. So I read through the coverage of last month's issue. And I saw where the letters came from. I saw what people were talking about. Uh, It did kind of paint things with a very broad brush, I thought. I'm not here to criticize the Chronicles writers. I, I couldn't do any better, I'm sure. But they quoted a lot of experts, professors and lawyers and et cetera, that uh, are paid to look at the problem. And it might not surprise you to see that people who are paid to look at the problem see a big problem. And so they made some very generalist statements. Uh, they, they made some contentions. For instance, they said that many Christians don't understand this. Many Christians are just wrong about this. They don't understand the big picture. Uh, they also said Christian nationalism, one expert said Christian nationalism is a significant problem in the churches of Christ. Now, so after reading all that and, and thinking through all that, I thought, now, there's a problem that we can solve in 30 minutes. Some of you have forgotten how my humor works, but (laughs) Uh, we're not going to solve it today. And I realize that just reading those things or telling you about them hit some of your hot buttons. Uh, But that doesn't matter. It's not about your hot button. Uh, It's about the fact that there are hot buttons. That there are things like this 
that are dividing the body of Christ. And we've been talking about unity for quite a while. And when you read a, a list of letters from people that read the Chronicle that, that are that far uh, opposed to each other, I thought, this is something we probably ought to talk about. And this is not a political sermon. This is a scriptural sermon, I hope. Uh, it's about how we do, how do we handle this uh, church, state, Christian duty thing. I'm not going to tell you what to do or what to think even, uh, but I do have some ideas on how we think about it. And my main overall point is I think it's much simpler than the experts make it. And the way I want to go through that is just look at what did God set up? God instituted three institutions, only three. Uh, he set up the family, he set up the church, he set up the state. Uh, in the first chapter of the Bible, he said, "Here's we're going to have a family, and here's how it's going to work. In Romans chapter 13, he points out that the government, the state, is ordained by God. It's an institution that's set up to make society work. And Jesus himself said, I will build my church. Those three institutions are the only institutions that God set up, God ordained. So he not only set them up, he designed them, and he told us how they're supposed to work. So let's just go through that real quickly. Uh, one God-ordained institution is the family. And here's what God said the family is supposed to do. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he said the, the family is supposed to teach right and wrong. You all know that passage. You can read it when you get home. Moses said, here's the commandments and rules and laws that God told me to tell to you, and you're supposed to obey them, and then you're supposed to teach your children, impress them on your children, so that things will go well for you, so that you will fear God for generations. That's what the family is supposed to do. Teach your children. Okay? First Thessalonians also says that the family is supposed to work and support itself. Work with your hands. Lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your own hands so that you can gain the respect of outsiders and... You'll be dependent on no one. The family is where that's supposed to happen. That's the way society is supposed to work. Ephesians chapter 5 gives us some more detailed rules for families. Husbands and wives are supposed to submit to each other. They're supposed to love each other. They're supposed to raise the children, and children are supposed to obey. Okay? The family, as designed by God, is the foundation of society what makes society work. When the family doesn't do those things, society's in trouble. It's where morals are taught. It's where children are civilized, so they know how to be good citizens. It's where industry happens. It's where wealth is created. That's God's design. Now, he also designed the church. Now, there are a lot of things that the church does. We worship. We do a lot of each other things. We encourage each other. We love each other. We care for each other. We bear with each other. 
We do all sorts of those things, and we understand those, and I didn't put all the verses up for that. That could go on for a long time. But here's an important one. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 says, God's household, which is the church of the living God, is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Now, there are lots of things that we assemble for and that we get together to do. That's one thing that's been a problem with the past year. We can't get together and do that as well. And I know all of that, but this is an awesome thought. This is an awesome responsibility. The church of the living God is instituted to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. It is designed to put the truth up on a pillar, hold up the truth about God. And to be the foundation to make sure that it stays solid. That's what the church is supposed to do. One other note about the institution of the church. When Jesus was asked about it, he said, this kingdom, this institution... Not of this world. Pilate asked him about it, and Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. And interesting to our discussion today, he went on to say, he said, if it was of this world, my followers would have fought my arrest. I wouldn't be standing before you, Pilate, if my kingdom was of this world. But it's not of this world. Okay, So... God instituted the church. The third institution that he ordained is the state. Uh, Really kind of started in Genesis 9-6 when everybody came off the boat after the flood. Uh, God said, here's some basic, real basic rules. Because man's made in my image, if somebody takes, sheds the blood of somebody, they have to be shed their blood. Capital punishment. The death penalty was instituted. God said, that's how society will work. Romans 13 is our biggest treatment of it. Romans 13, in fact, let's just read that, make sure we see it. Verses 1 through 7. Paul, which actually we'll get into this next week in class. Paul said, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. He doesn't bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes with the authorities or ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, that's a hard passage, but that's what the passage says. 
God instituted governments for two basic purposes, to punish evil and to reward good. That's what governments are supposed to do under God's design. Now, subsequent to that, we have some responsibilities, some duties, and Romans 13 mentioned a few. First Peter chapter 2 says we're supposed to submit to government, we're supposed to respect them, we're supposed to honor them. First Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says we're supposed to pray for them. Pray for your leaders that you can live a quiet and peaceful life. All right, those are the three institutions that God ordained and their respective roles. They have very different roles. Now, what I want to spend, and hopefully you wrote those verses down and can look at them in more detail if you get home, but that's just the basics. And if you got that in your head, I want to make sure that we understand there's two dangers that we face in this. And let's think about the first one this way, is these are the basic rules. God ordained them, God instituted them, God set them up. And when you mess with God's plan, it doesn't end well. Whatever. He instituted plans for our benefit. And if we mess with them, if we don't follow them, it doesn't end well. God designed a gravity. You can challenge that if you want to. But it won't end well. And that's the way with everything he set up. And he set up these three institutions. And the first danger that we face is that we'll challenge this plan. We'll mess with it. And, And that danger I call confusing the roles. If you confuse the roles of family, church, and state, things go bad quick. We can look around us and see where we've done that. When the church, who is set up to uphold the truth, decides that we will not uphold the truth, that's not our main responsibility. Our responsibility is social justice. And you can find that all over. You can look up almost any mainline denomination Go to their website, look at their purpose for existence, and that's where it'll start. Our purpose is social justice. To right this wrong, to fix this societal problem, to do this. Okay? It's not the purpose of the church. Okay? When the state says, okay, our responsibility is now to teach right and wrong. To decide what is right and wrong. It's not the state's responsibility. That's the family's. And things go bad when they do. When the family says, it's not our responsibility to raise our children, but church, you raise our children. You teach our children right and wrong. You have a youth minister to do that, and I'll let you have my kid for two weeks, uh, two hours a week, and you teach them right and wrong. You teach them to fear God. That doesn't end well. When the state says, we will make sure that everybody has a living wage. We will take care of what people earn so they can support themselves and they will be dependent on us. 
that directly contradicts the design of the family. That's where that's supposed to happen is in the family. When an individual says, I will take care of justice myself. I've been wronged and I will be a vigilante and I'll take care of that. That's not the way Christians do it. Government's instituted to do that. Now those are just a few examples, but you can see any time we get those crossways with each other and the family or the church or the state starts to take responsibility for the other two and neglect their own responsibility, it will not end well. Okay, so that's the first danger, and I think that helps us understand where we stand sometimes. But the second danger, and this is, I couldn't preach this in a lot of the world, because this second danger applies to very, very few people. And the second danger is uniquely American. When we look at the roles of family, church, and state, in America, we've got something laid over the top of that. We have, as Americans, freedom of speech. We can say what we want. We have freedom of religion. It's guaranteed to us. We have a voice in government. We can vote. We can lobby. We can run for office. We can be part of government as Americans. America was founded on biblical principles. Now, when I say this applies to very, very few people, began to think that that's not the way of the world. We've got all those blessings. And when those blessings seem to be under attack, which I'll admit they are, it bothers us as Americans to different degrees, but it it bothers us as Americans to see those things being torn apart and to see the state telling us this is truth and this is false when this book says it the other way. So that's a level of a problem that, let's put it this way, I'd say less than 1% of all Christians ever have ever had this problem. You might wonder how I calculated that. Well, (laughs) we've had America for about a little over 200 years out of 2,000 of Christianity. That's about 10%. But then you start to think of all the Christians that have ever existed. From the 3,000 on Pentecost to Cornelius to Lydia to everybody who has ever become a Christ follower for 2,000 years. All over the world in every kind of government and every kind of dictatorship and every kind of oppressive regime, wherever, Americans have got to be less than 1% of that. Probably way less than 1%. You understand that this family, church, and state that God instituted applied for every other Christian. Now, the Roman Christians, the church in Rome that we've been reading about in class, the church in Rome had no say over what Nero did to them. 
In fact, they, when they met, for all they knew, that member or that one would not be there next Sunday because Nero's soldiers would have taken him and burned him alive. They had no say in their government. They had no freedom of speech or religion. Their government was not founded on biblical principles. It was founded on Caesar's power. Christians in China today meet together secretly in house churches and expect a raid at any time. They've got none of this blessing that we have. Christians in Venezuela have no say as well as no water and no food and no electricity because they live under an evil government. Now, I, I tell you all those things to say that the church, family, state institutions apply to all those Christians as well as us, but we've got all these blessings as Americans on top of it. Now, those Christians, and and as we get more and more oppressed, if you want to use that word, we'll have to make these decisions more and more, but the other 99% of Christians had to make these kind of decisions. When do I obey the state? Romans 13, when do they cross the line to what they're doing what God forbids? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, famous teacher during the World War II, the Nazi era. Uh, he was a pastor of the church, and he had to decide that. He saw what the Nazis were doing, and he had to decide, do I oppose that or not? I mean, something very basic, like the Nazis said, put a Nazi flag in every church. Bonhoeffer said, never. Our allegiance is not to the state. It is to the truth. Some of you, if you're visiting, you might wonder why we don't have an American flag in here. Some people think that'd be a great idea. Well, that's one reason. Our allegiance is not to the flag. Now, as Americans, we've got that blessing. But as a church, no, our allegiance is to the truth. So Bonhoeffer said, no flag in my church. He went further than that. He resisted. He taught that the euthanasia, the genocide of the Jews, was wrong. And he paid the price. He was arrested. He put in a camp. He was eventually hanged. So he had to make that decision. Uh, When do I obey and when do I don't? When do I stand with God and uphold the truth? And when when am I not? We hadn't had to make that decision very often. Okay, so so here's the danger. This picture of family, church, and state is very clear. We understood every verse I read. You can go home and you read those verses and you can see every one, one of them. It is easy to understand and it is also from God. But the danger is, when we add those uniquely American blessings, it gets really hard to see what God has said. When we take all of those freedoms, unique freedoms that we have, and we mix them too much in, 
it gets hard to remember, what did God say about this? Our plan is from God, not from the Constitution. And sometimes we get that confused. Our marching orders come from the Lord, not from a president. Our loyalty is not to an elephant or a donkey, but to the lamb. And sometimes, because of all these freedoms we've got and we've had all our lives, that gets hard to see. We get it confused a little bit, and the experts, the professors and all that can name it and call it all sorts of things, but we do get it confused sometimes. It's hard not to. Understand that those basic functions of family, church, and state exist with our blessings or without our blessings. If you're in the 1% of Christians that has those extra blessings of Americanism, that's fine. If you lived in the 99% that don't, that's fine. They applied to Romans. They applied in Caracas. They apply in Wichita. They applied in the 1st century. They apply in the 21st century. The family has its role, the church has its role, and the state has its role. And to the state, Christians have a duty to submit, to honor, to respect, and pray for our government. So that's how we think about it, how we should think about it. Now, what do we do about that? That's the tricky part. The application is always the hard part. Let me tell you about two people, and maybe it'll help you understand what I'm trying to tell you here. Uh, many of you know who David Lipscomb was, and named Lipscomb University after him. Uh, he and James Harding also founded Harding University. Lipscomb thought about all the things that I've just talked about, about what the family does, what the church does, and what the state does. And here was his conclusion. He said, Everyone who honors and serves the human government and relies upon it for good more than he does on the divine government worships and serves the creature more than he does the creator. Lipscomb went on to say a Christian should have nothing to do with government. Christian shouldn't vote. Christian shouldn't serve in war. Christian shouldn't serve on a jury. That was his conclusion. He looked at what the Bible says about family, church, and state. He had the American blessings on top of it, and that was his conclusion. Now, George Benson, the other fellow in the picture here, uh, Lipscomb lived back in the late 1800s, by the way, died in 1917. Uh, Benson was in this or the 20th century. Uh, he was a missionary to China in his early life. And in China, he had the experience of the communists running him out of China, telling him he could not teach the truth. He saw the evils of communism. And because of that, he devoted the rest of his life, he made it his life's mission to oppose communism and socialism. And he became famous for that. He made Harding University famous for that when he was the president of Harding University, when my father went there. He uh, 
was taught by George Benson and knew him well, uh, he became associated with patriotism, with free enterprise. He was very, very political. And he made Harding University very political during his time. Okay? Now, I tell you those two stories because both of those men looked at what we've looked at today, and they concluded, here's the best way for me to live. Now, I don't know which one was right and which one was wrong. I don't know how right and how wrong each one of them were. I think they both believed that they were right. I think they did it in good conscience. Looking at it with the benefit of hindsight, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to step out of the pulpit because this is me saying this. In the grand scheme of things, the grand cosmic scheme, I think George Benson plan was probably better for America, and I think David Lipscomb's was probably better for the church. I'm not saying either one was wrong. I'm not saying how to do it. I'm just saying they thought about it and came to pretty different conclusions, and we've got to think about it also. Now, I'm not sure we're able to assess the grand cosmic picture in our little time on earth. So let's do it in a smaller scale. We've got to make this decision, and there's something got to help us make this decision besides just our Americanism and our patriotism and all that. And what I, the, the principle I want to give us is to go back to that passage that this is the third week in a row I've finished with it. What did Jesus want? What did Jesus pray for? And he prayed that his followers would be unified, perfectly unified, because that was the only way the world would believe in Jesus. So if we kind of lay that over everything, then maybe when we assess what box we're in, then you've got to think about that. Okay, am I, am I functioning in my family now? Am I functioning in the church, or am I functioning as my duty to the state? Which one am I, which role am I in now? And am I acting as God designed? And the big question is, how do my actions, whatever they are, how do my actions help make Jesus' prayer a reality? You see, when Jesus prayed this, Here's something for us to think about. When Jesus prayed this, sitting at the table with him, or maybe they're sitting side by side. I never thought of that. Matthew and Simon. Before Jesus called them, Matthew had worked for the Roman government. They were occupiers. They were an oppressive force. He collected taxes to support that oppression. Jewish people hated Matthew because he was a tax collector. Simon was a zealot, and zealots were a party that opposed Roman oppression, and their specialty was assassinating Roman soldiers. Simon was a zealot. He hated the Roman occupation. Matthew supported it. 
when Jesus called them, Matthew's bumper sticker probably said, Hail Caesar. Okay. And Simon's bumper sticker probably said, Defund Soldiers. But Jesus called them, and somehow they took their bumper stickers off. Somehow they sat at the same table. Somehow they worked together for unity so that the world would believe. The lesson is yours. You're here this morning and need to respond in some way. Want to be part of the Lord's body or seek the prayers of this family. We're going to invite you to do that. The elders will be at the back. Just go see one of them. Let's stand and sing.